I, uh, I understand you can, uh, parents, you can hire him to sing to your kids and <laughs> how, how, how that little one stayed that still. You ought to see, you couldn't see it back in the back, but that baby's eyes were just fixed on Elsie when he was, uh, when he was singing. Uh, if you'll take your Bibles this morning, in fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with two primary verses. Uh, one is found in the book of Matthew. One is found in the book of Isaiah, uh, the ninth chapter. Uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm going to really deal uh, with about a dozen different verses. These are all in your listening guide this morning, and I'll be turning to them uh, quite rapidly in time, so you might just want to listen as we look at a number of verses that deals uh, with this Christmas story that we celebrate. And while you're turning there, just let me take just a minute, and I I hate to even do this this morning, but I need to. I'm going to be gone the next two weeks. Uh, Rich is going to be leading the service uh, on on the first of the year, and it will be a Lord's Supper service. And then on the 9th of, uh, excuse me, the 8th of January, uh, uh, Dr. Rob Peters will be preaching uh, here for me. Rob is uh, the head of Corpus, who we've engaged as a church family to help uh, guide us through this uh, time of transition. And uh, I think it's good that Rob is uh, going to be able to preach and speak to the church almost at the very beginning of our process, and he will be doing that. Uh, Rob and I will be out of town. Uh, because of that, let me go ahead and say I have shared with you that we are uh, doing two more trips next year, another one, another trip to the Holy Land, and then also a trip uh, on the journeys of Paul. And on the 15th, immediately after both worship services for about five minutes, uh, I'll meet with you, anyone who's interested, and I'll give you some information about that. You can look at it, and then you can ask questions later. But uh, that will be on the 15th. And then let me remind our men, uh, February 4th and 5th, our men's conference. And uh, Dr. Randy Kennedy will be our guest speaker. Uh, The theme for the conference is Men of Integrity. And let me encourage all of our men to mark that on your calendar, to be here for dinner that evening, and then stay for uh, the conference. We'll have a couple of sessions, one Saturday night, two on Sunday morning. And uh, it's a joy and a privilege for us to have Randy coming to share. He'll bless your heart, I promise you. And then, guys, for six weeks after this, and I'll uh, share more about it, just a burden that I have and that I just, since uh, I'm going to be here a little bit longer, I just really felt strongly impressed um, uh, to do something for the men here in our church. And for six Tuesday nights after that, for one hour, I want, I want to ask you to give me one hour for six weeks straight. I want to, I want to speak to you. I want to deal with a, a discipling matter on a large group scale. We're going to talk about how to walk with God. How to Walk with God, six weeks, one hour for six weeks in a row. So let me ask you to be praying about that. We'll be meeting on Tuesday nights and uh, see what God has to say and how he will use that. I hope you'll be a part of it. And then lastly, on, on behalf of Rob and I, let me thank so many of you who've shared cards, you've shared gifts, you've shared goodies, uh, just words of encouragement to us over this Christmas season. And I'd be amiss if we didn't say thank you. Uh, You have helped to make this Christmas season a very uh, blessed one for us. And just thank you for the way that you've expressed your love to us uh, during these uh, days. The title of the message this morning is, There's Just Something About That Name. You know, the Bible has a lot to say to us about names. And names are very important. In fact, in our American culture, we lose some of the significance of names because names are not as meaningful in many cases as they are in other parts of the world. 
but particularly in biblical times, Old Testament, New Testament alike, names were very significant. And uh, we find in the Bible many names given to the Lord Jesus, and especially at Christmas time. So I want to take that, uh, that title, obviously from an old song that we used to sing. There's just something about that name as we reflect on the Christmas story uh, this morning. Uh, just a few weeks ago, a group of us from here had the privilege of going to the Holy Land, to Israel, and for 10 days be in country and get to visit some of the wonderful sites that we read about. Uh, we had a great trip as God opened some incredible opportunities uh, for us to visit uh, that very special land. And at Christmas time, when you talk about Israel and you think about the Christmas story, there's one place that stands out above them all, and that is the city of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the city of the Savior born 2,000 years ago. In many ways, it was a very special, supernatural, and sacred place back at that first Christmas. But if you had traveled with us a few weeks ago, you probably would not have been very impressed. In fact, you might have left there disappointed. Today, Bethlehem is in the West Bank of Israel, and in many places it looks more like a ghetto than it does a, a special place as we know it to be. Uh, there in that place, there's garbage littering many of the streets. Uh, most of the buildings look like they're either half-built or they stand in ruin. It does not look very impressive whatsoever. And then on top of that, if you were to go to the Church of the, of the Nativity, which we did not actually go to. We saw it from a distance, but we did not go inside the church. But if you were to go inside the church of the nativity, you would be, again, probably very disappointed. There you would find um, uh, shrines, religious shrines and ornaments that have been placed there by various uh, religious groups trying to depict their concept of the birth of Christ and then maybe in their own way uh, make it a, a special place for them, but I think in many ways uh, it really has taken away from the significance of that special place. In fact, I came away from that place the first time and I just about won't go back to it when I have been on other occasions. It almost looks sacrilegious uh, to me. I don't think that's what the Lord Jesus himself wanted his birthplace to become. And because of that, I think it's one of the reasons we don't know the exact location. Uh, we can't say for sure where it is. But uh, you would probably walk away if you had gone into the church of the nativity like I did, very, very disappointed. And one of the stunning things to me as you go into Bethlehem, and to some extent it's like this all over the country of Israel. You go into Bethlehem and knowing the significance of what took place there 2,000 years ago, and people who live there today don't seem to even know what happened. They've lost the significance of what took place there. In fact, for many of them, the only thing that Bethlehem means to them today is a place to make money off the tourists who come to see the place that Jesus was born. And if you were to ask many, and I have done this, if you were to ask many what took place here or what's the significance of this place, they probably could not give you the right answer. Bethlehem would be a disappointing place to you today. But there in the city of Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago, God was born to mankind. 
Now, let me say that again to you. God was born to mankind. God stepped out of glory and came to dwell with us. And that fact alone makes Bethlehem a very, very special place. God came to dwell among men. Listen to these verses in the Bible that speak. I've just read one of those verses a moment ago. John 1 verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Philippians 2 verses 5, 6, and 7, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Matthew in his gospel records these words, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translates means God with us. God with us. There in the city of Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago, God stepped out of glory and came to dwell among the human race. And here in the book of Matthew, he tells us that the Savior's name was to be called Emmanuel. And he translates that for us. Emmanuel, God with us. What an amazing name and what an amazing truth. And as we celebrate Christmas today, we should all be amazed that God is with us. Hey, folks, our God is not some impart, an impersonal God that just dwells in the heavens or sits in a temple disinterested in the affairs of the human race. God is with us. And that's what makes his name so wonderful. Emmanuel, God with us. There's truly just something about that name. Many years before Bethlehem, um, Isaiah foretold of the coming Messiah, one that would be God's special anointed one, one that would be the Messiah of the world, one that would come to be the Savior of the world. There in the ninth chapter of the book of Isaiah, we find uh, his prophecy concerning this. There's one verse out of that whole section that I want to focus on uh, for a few moments because it talks about some of the names of this promised one coming. Isaiah, the ninth chapter, verse 6. Isaiah prophesies and he says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There's just something about that name. Hey, here in this verse, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah presents to us what we will call a great dualism. A great dualism about the promised coming Savior. In one phrase, Isaiah points out to us 
that a child will be born to us. But then he asserts, and a son will be given to us. Now let me ask you this morning, why say twice what appears to be essentially the same thing? Well, the reason's obvious and it's important that you understand this and that you see it. The reason is simply this, it's because the two are not the same, not in the least. And again, it's very important that we understand the difference. Listen very carefully to me and I'm going to read this or I'm going to stick to my notes a little closer because I want to make sure I get it right. And, And let me just say to all of us who are followers of Christ from a theological standpoint, this is one of the most important doctrinal truths that you ever can get right about Christ. And if you don't get this right, you'll get nothing else right about the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen very, very carefully. On that first Christmas morning 2,000 years ago, the child Jesus was born. But the son Jesus was preexistent. The son was not born for he always has been and always will be. The child was born but the son was given. Yes, the child and the son are the same, but the terms used to describe him are greatly different because they teach us a great difference between the two. I do not remember where I got this from. I got it a long time ago. I've used it often at Christmas time. But someone wrote these words once to try to describe the difference and the importance of these two titles. It says this, a child is born, that speaks of the humanity of Christ. A son is given, that speaks of the divinity of Christ. A child is born, that speaks of impotence. A son is given, that speaks of omnipotence. A child is born, that speaks of the terrestrial. A son is given, that speaks of the celestial. A child is born, that speaks of the earthly. A son is given, that speaks of the heavenly. A child is born, that speaks of the son of men. A son is given, that speaks of the son of God. Isaiah called the duality of Christ in simple but profound words as he described the wonderful gift God was giving to the world, namely his own son. Just think of it. Jesus had an earthly mother but no earthly father. Jesus has a heavenly father but no heavenly mother. In essence, God's son from heaven came to be born as a child here on this earth for the express purpose of redeeming the lost race of humanity. And as Isaiah pointed towards a time some hundreds of years in the future that this Messiah would come, this promised Savior that he tells us about, he gives to him four names four titles if you would and again in an old testament sense names were very very important uh parents would name their children things that they wanted them to be remembered by hopefully to instill principle into their life oftentimes from a biblical perspective god would give a name to a person because it depicted who they really were or who god wanted them to become names were very special and as isaiah paints for us the picture of this one who was to be born 
this son, this child that was to be born and this son that was to be given, he gives us four names that describe for us both the person, the character, and the activity of this promised Messiah that would come. Surely there's just something about that name. Through these names, we find out who is this one that came to save the, save the world. What kind of Savior was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago? This one who is God with us, what is he like? And maybe more important than any of these questions, what kind of Savior will he be for us today? All of those things are found in these names. So for a few minutes this morning, let's take a look at them. Four very important names. Name number one, Wonderful Counselor. Now, some Bibles uh, maybe break that up. There are some uh, translations that put them as separate, as wonderful, and as counselor. But really, it ought to go together. This one who is coming, this child that is to be born, this son that is giving, is a wonderful counselor. As God with us, Jesus is a wonderful counselor. Uh, Dr. Albert Barnes in his commentary on these verses in Isaiah had this to say about these two words. Wonderful. He said it carries with it the idea of being remarkable. The proper idea is that it is suited to excite amazement, wonder, and admiration. As counselor, the name counselor here denotes one of honorable rank one who is suited to stand near princes and kings as their advisor. It is expressive of great wisdom and of qualifications to guide and direct the human race. It could be translated the God of wonderful counsel. And folks, as our wonderful counselor, our savior knows our needs. Uh, you know, if you were to go see a counselor today for some uh, area of need in your life, in order for that counselor to help you, and in order for you to benefit from their counsel, that counselor, he or she, has to know you fully. They have to know really what's going on inside of you. They have to know what you're thinking. They have to know what you're feeling. They have to try to understand your deepest thoughts, your deepest hurts, your deepest desires. And for that counselor to be effective, they have to know you maybe even better than you know yourself. That's what it is with Jesus. And that's how he works in our lives, isn't it? He is the great counselor. He knows us wholly and completely. He knows our human strengths and our human weaknesses. He knows our sins. He knows our struggles. He knows our past. He knows our present. He knows our future. For as a wonderful counselor, he is omniscient, all-knowing, because he is God himself. I, uh, I love the book of Psalms. I think I preached from it last Sunday or uh, one of the Psalms uh, last week. It's one of my favorite studies. One of the favorite things I have to preach through is the great book of, of Psalms. But uh, there's one Psalm that is one of my very, very favorite, and that is Psalm 139. I'm not going to read the entire Psalm for you this morning. But I want you to listen as the psalmist depicts uh, God and, and how God works in our life and how God relates to us as humans. And boy, these verses talk about him being a wonderful counselor who knows us better than we know ourselves. The psalmist writes and he says, 
uh, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path, my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them." Hey, folks, he is a wonderful counselor. We do not have a Savior that is impersonal and does not care about us. No, he is Emmanuel, God with us. And because he is with us, he is a wonderful counselor, one who knows us better than we know ourselves, and he is able to work in us and through us according to his great counsel and wisdom. He knows far better than we what we need for our life. Hey, what a privilege it is for us as we come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior to go to him and seek his counsel. Hey, do you need direction for your life today? He is the wonderful counselor. Do you need to talk with someone who knows what you're feeling deep down in your inner person? He is the wonderful counselor. Do you need to show him or speak to someone about problems that you're walking through? He knows them already. He's a wonderful counselor. Do you need wisdom beyond your ability for life and living? He is the wonderful counselor. God with us, wonderful counselor. There's just something about that name. Well, Isaiah goes on. Not only does he call him here the wonderful counselor, he then says he's the mighty God. He's the mighty God. You know, when the child was born as a babe, he certainly didn't seem very powerful or mighty. In many ways, he was just another helpless baby entering into life on this planet. But as the son who was given, now listen carefully, as the son that was given, he was and he is the mighty one. He was and he is omnipotent God in the flesh. The Hebrew term used here for mighty could be translated as a champion or a hero but it probably more likely speaks here, this word, of the person's ability to perform great and powerful deeds. And how befitting that is of this one who came to dwell among us, the Lord Jesus. This one born in the manger 2,000 years ago was actually the one who had created all things. As a helpless child, he had to go through all that a normal child goes through. But as the son, he was and is omnipotent God who spoke and the worlds came into existence. As the son, he is the mighty God. 
The Apostle Paul, as he was thinking about this one who would come to redeem the world, he begins to talk about him in Colossians, the first chapter, verses 15 to 17. And he says of the Lord Jesus, this child that was born, this son that was given, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And then he says this, and in him all things hold together. That's our God. That's this son that was born 2,000 years ago. This, that's Jesus that we worship. This is this Emmanuel who is God with us. And as the mighty God, there's nothing too difficult for him. Jeremiah, the 32nd chapter, verse 17. Jeremiah wrote, All Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. And folks, as Emmanuel, God with us, his power is at work in the hearts and the lives of people. Do you realize this morning that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you carry about in your very body the presence of Christ? He's there in the person of the Holy Spirit. Yes, he's a wonderful counselor who can know our deepest thoughts and our deepest uh, needs, but he's also mighty God. His power at work in you and in me because he is the mighty God. That's the reason Paul wrote to the Philippians and he said these words, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul didn't have power, but he had God. And because he had God, he had God's power. Later in Ephesians, he wrote to the Ephesian church and he's praying for them. And this is what he prayed for the Ephesians. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? He's in us. He's mighty God. And Paul's just praying that our eyes will be open, that we can see his power that's at work in our hearts, in our lives. He is the mighty God, and there's nothing that you and I will ever face in this life or death that he cannot handle. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. Here's the third name. Look at it. He's eternal father. He's eternal father. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, eternal Father. This is, this is really good. All of it's good, isn't it? You know, it's, it's, I, I say that a lot of times. I'll read a verse of scripture and I'll, I'll, I'll this is really good. And then I stop and think, all of it's good. Some of it's just good, good. That's not good English, but it's good, good. And uh, you understand this morning. But this is really good. He's eternal Father. Uh, Warren Wiersbe said this about the name of Jesus. He said, Everlasting Father does not suggest that the Son is also the Father, for each person in the Godhead is distinct. Father of eternity would be a better translation. Among the Jews, the word Father means originator 
or source. So if you want anything, listen, if you want anything eternal, you must get it from Jesus Christ. For he is the father or source or originator of eternity. Hey folks, as a child, the Lord Jesus had a beginning and an ending concerning his earthly life. As a child, he was born on that first Christmas morning in the town of Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. As a child, he grew up and he died some 33 years later on a hill called Mount Calvary as a child. But as a son, listen, he has no beginning and no ending for he is eternal God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last who has always been and always will be. He is the Father of eternity. And by the way, if you want that which is eternal, you must find and receive it from the source of eternity, the eternal Father, the Lord Jesus himself. That's why we read all through the Gospels. Verses like I'm about to read to you, particularly in the Gospel of John. John is presenting to us the Son of God. He's presenting to the world the Son of God so that we might know that Jesus is the Son of God, that we might believe on him. And time and time and time and time again, the Apostle John tells us that he's eternal God. And if you want to find eternity, you can only find it in Jesus. And by the way, it do us all good to be reminded, you will never find eternity in anything in this world. You will not find eternity in religion. You will not find eternity in good works. You will not find eternity by any self-identification or self-help in your own life. You only find it from the source of eternity. And that's the Lord Jesus. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 6, verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on that last day. Why? Because he's the Father of eternity. John 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. John 17, verses 2 and 3, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 6, verses 66 to 68. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you not want to go also, do you? And Simon Peter looked to Jesus and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? And then he says these words, you have words of eternal life. Well, if you want to find eternal, if you want anything eternal, you have to go to the source of eternity himself.
As a child, Jesus had a beginning. He had an ending. But as the son, he is eternal God. He's the eternal father. Everything eternal from eternity comes from him. You don't find it again in trying to live a good life, doing all the good deeds you can to try to find favor with God. It does not even come from religion. It will only come from the one who is the eternal father, Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father. There's just something about that name. Well, there's one more name. We'll look at it and we'll close this morning. Uh, he's called the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. He's a wonderful counselor. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He's able to work in us because he knows who we are. He's mighty God. Nothing's too difficult for him. He's the eternal father. All eternity comes from him. But he's also the Prince of Peace. It's interesting, during the night in which the Lord Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, do you remember what was going on out in the shepherd's field not far from the place of the Savior? By the way, I told you a minute ago, if you went to the city of Bethlehem and to the church of the Nativity, you might leave disappointed. But there's one neat place to go to in Bethlehem, and uh, if you ever get there, you want to make sure you go there. Go to the, go to the shepherd's fields. Go see what it would have been like the night that Jesus was born. Go see where he would have been born. It wasn't in some uh, sanctified, uh, sanitized barn like we make stables out to be. He was born in a stinking cave out in the shepherd's fields. And though they can't take you to the exact place that Jesus was born out there, they can take you to uh, places that said this would have been what it would have been like, and they could take you to the vicinity in which Christ was, was born. But it's interesting uh, that here on the, on the night that Christ was born, the first announcement of his birth came to a bunch of shepherds. A bunch of shepherds. I mean, why didn't he go to Jerusalem and tell Herod that the Savior had been born? Why didn't he announce it? Why didn't the angels announce it to all the religious zealots in, in Jerusalem? Why shepherds? Well, the answer is obvious if you know the Lord Jesus. Uh, he was, it was announced to the shepherds because the shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus, had been born. The one who would come to shepherd all God's people had been born. So God took it to the humble shepherds and he announced that night that Jesus, God's son, had been born. Listen to what he told them. This is found in Luke's gospel, the second chapter, verses 18, excuse me, 8 to 14. It says that in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for today I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David... There has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And here it is. And on earth peace among men with whom God 
is pleased. How in the world could these angels make such a declaration on that first Christmas evening? Well, it's simple. They made it because the Prince of Peace himself had been born on this earth. Emmanuel, God with us, the true source of peace, had been given to this world. And because Jesus is the Prince of Peace, you and I can have real peace in our lives, peace with God and the peace of God. You know, it's interesting uh, when you think about this verse, and I would imagine that verse that I just read to you, verse 14, is probably one of the most quoted verses of Scripture. Uh, when you think about Christmas time, many Christmas cards quote that verse about, let there be peace on earth. And it's one of the most misunderstood verses in all the Bible and one of the most uh, misused verses uh, about the Christmas story. And if you think back over to the land of Israel where Jesus was born, if you think about the conditions in which he was born in, the nation of Israel has really never known peace in the sense of a lack of conflict. And most of the time when we think of peace, that's what we think of. It's a lack of conflict. Well, the land of Israel certainly didn't know that type of peace. I mean, the Jews hate the Arabs. The Arabs hate the Jews. Uh, there have been so-called peace treaties made over and over by earthly governments of all types, but there's never really been any real peace in the Middle East. So were the angels wrong that night? Did they bring some wrong information about this one who was born in Bethlehem? Well, certainly not. We just maybe misunderstood what was meant. One day when Jesus comes again as he has promised, he will bring with him a peace that will cause all war and struggle to cease. That will happen one day. But when he was born 2,000 years ago, he brought with him a peace much greater than the absence of war and struggle on this earth. He brought with him the gift of our being made right with God and finding God's peace for our hearts and lives. Folks, do you know what is the most important thing that you need to know and you need to experience while you're on this earth? It's simply this. How do I make peace with God? Because one of these days, every human being who's ever been born is going to have to stand before a holy God. And they're going to have to give an account of their life. The Bible makes it very, very clear that because we are human because we have been born into the human race. We have all been born into this race with a sinful nature. And because we have a sinful, sinful nature, we have done acts of sin, every one of us. And Paul reminds us that we've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. The Bible makes it clear to us that because of sin, we're at enmity with God. There's a great separation between us and and holy God and if we were to ever try to stand before holy God in our own standing in our own righteousness we have no righteousness in ourselves because we're all sinners separated from God we're in a dilemma and if you're not a child of God you don't have peace with God in fact Paul later writes in the book of Ephesians that you're an enemy of God your sin has made you an enemy with God but God knowing that knowing that 
we were broken away from him because of our sin. Our sin had removed us from fellowship with him. But because he is a God of love, he did something for us that we could never do for ourselves. He made a way by which we could be made right with God. We could make our peace with God. He sent Jesus. Jesus came to this earth to live a perfect life, to go to the cross one day and shed his perfect blood on a cross to satisfy the moral and the righteous demands of God for sin. He took my sin upon himself. He took your sin upon himself. He paid the price for your sin, for my sin, so that one day when I might believe in him, that he is God's son, that he is who he said he was, that he came to pay the price and the penalty of my sin, that he took God's judgment for my sin upon himself. If I would by faith simply trust that, believe in him, confess with my mouth that he is Lord, I could be born again. God could forgive me of my sin and I could be made peace with God. That's the great news of Christmas that we celebrate today. God is with us and he has made a way that we can be right with a holy God. Now you ought to say amen. If you can't say it, you need to be able to say it. Amen. Emmanuel. God with us. There's just something about that name. The Prince of Peace. He has come so that we might have peace with God. And once we make our peace with God, we can walk in the peace of God. You know, this world's gone crazy, hasn't it? It really has. I mean, it, it's, it, it's, just gone off, it's just gone off the rocks. I mean, it's, it's just, it's unbelievable. People, people have gone crazy. We have more addictions. We have more problems. We got doctors for every kind of psychological problem and issue that there is. We have people that are strung out and hooked on everything imaginable. Why? Because we're trying to find purpose in life and we're in the process of trying to do it in our own strength. We, we mess things up. We get out of sorts with ourselves. But more importantly, we get out of sorts with God. But you know what? When I trust Jesus as my Lord and my Savior, he comes in and saves me, makes me a brand new creature in Christ, begins to work in my life as Lord, begins to transform me from the inside out, works in me to make me more like him day in and day out. All of a sudden, I find that not only have I made my peace with God, all of a sudden, I can have the peace of God walking through this life. So whatever I experience, whatever I go through, whatever might come my way really does not have to affect me because I know the one who is the source of all peace. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. He is the prince of peace. Peace with God. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace of God. Rome, uh, Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, I'll close this morning with a quick, humorous story. Uh, it is said that a five-year-old little boy uh, was, uh, had a part in his kindergarten Christmas play. Actually, he had only one line to memorize and then repeat 
in his play. Uh, appearing in an angel outfit, his line was to say, I bring you good tidings. I bring you good tidings. After many rehearsals, the young boy asked his mother, Mom, what are tidings? To which the mother tried to explain that tidings were news. News. Well, the performance finally began. It came time for the little angel to repeat his phrase, I bring you good tidings. His time comes, frustrated that he could not remember his one line, he somehow remembered what his mother had told him about tidings. So after a few moments, he broke his long embarrassing silence by not saying his original line, I bring you good tidings. He finally spoke up, blurted out the following, hey, have I got good news for you? Well, hey folks, I've got good news for you this Christmas morning. It's the best news anyone could ever give to you. A savior has been born and his name is Emmanuel. God with us, and he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, the prince of peace. There's just something about his name. Father, we bless you today. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. What a gift. What a savior. Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough that even while we were yet sinners, you sent your son Jesus to this earth. Thank you that you love this world so much that you sent your only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, thank you for the promising word that tells us that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a Savior. What a Savior. If you're here this morning, there's never been a time in your life that you've met Jesus that you've come to confess him as your Lord and Savior, that you've believed on him in your heart, you've confessed him with your mouth, you've called upon his name to save you from your sins. Well, let me just say to you, there'd be no better time, no better place than right here on this Christmas morning than to meet the Savior that was born 2,000 years ago. In just a second, Lee's going to lead us in our and a song as we stand and we sing. If you're here and you need Christ, I'm going to be standing down front as we stand and sing. Would you just step, simply step out from where you'll be standing, make your way down front. Just come take me by the hand and all you need to say is, Pastor Ken, I need to give my heart, my life to Jesus today. I want to meet the Savior. We'll have one of our staff members step out with you for a moment and share with you from God's Word how you can give your heart to Christ today and how you can find eternal life, how you can meet this God who is with us this very morning. Would you come? Boy, as soon as we begin to sing, don't wait. You come give your heart to Christ today. 
Christian, if God has spoken to you this morning, this too is a time for you to come. And whatever decision, God, if you need someone to pray for you, maybe you just need to come to this altar for a moment and pray. As God speaks to your heart, you respond. So, Lord, let us respond to your invitation this morning. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory for it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?